0: There's a tradition in the United States, a departing president leaves the incoming president a personal letter. When George Bush Sr. died, we got to see the beautiful letter he left for Bill Clinton. It ends with, I'm rooting for you. Now, Bob Ray recently told another story as if it happened to a Premier of Ontario. The new premier moves into the office at Queen's Park and checks the top drawer of the desk and he finds three numbered envelopes from the premier before him. He starts with number one and the note inside says first time you get in trouble blame it all on me. Well he thought I'm already doing that so that's fine. He opens envelope number two and the second note says next time you get into trouble blame it on the other guys okay that's good advice but he wonders what could be in the third envelope or whether he should open it now or or leave it for a while but he rips it open and the note falls out and he picks it up and it says now sit down and write three letters well Jesus gives his parting instructions in more detail to his disciples while he's still with them. But in our gospel today from John chapter 17, he leaves them in a way because he goes deep into prayer, into communion with the Father. His first disciples overhear him, and thanks to John, we get to listen in to that prayer. And as they hear him pray for them, we hear him pray for us. He says, I ask not only on behalf of these, but on behalf of those who will believe in me because of their words. And in many gospel stories, especially in John's gospel where Jesus preaches several long sermons, we are invited to imagine Jesus looking over the heads of the people close to him and seeing a huge crowd. And we are in that crowd. And everyone in that crowd believes in Jesus because we received the words of the first apostles. We know him through the testimony of the first to believe him. And in this prayer, as John tells the story, Jesus names us and lifts you and me up to the Father in concern, because we're just as important to him and his ministry in the world, we are just important as those first to follow him are. And everything he asks for them, he asks for us. That we will come to know God through him. That we will know and remember that we belong to him. And that we'll be protected from evil, from anything that might tear us away from God and he prays that we all may be one. Almost two thousand years later, how are we doing on that one? But this isn't institutional unity. This isn't church unity. This is a spiritual unity, but even spiritual is not strong enough. This is a soul unity with very practical implications for us as individuals, and for the church, and for the world. This isn't about us all being the same. It's about recognizing the source and resource of life that we all draw from the same being. This isn't about us all doing the same things in the same way. It won't be long before the eleven who are named, who are with Jesus in the upper room and many others whose names we don't know, it won't be long before they are scattered all over the empire and beyond, each one continuing Jesus' ministry in their own way, for the place where they are and the people that they gather together in community. The unity Jesus prays for us is unity of purpose. Most of the details are left for us to figure out. And this isn't unity in believing. Since the birth of the church, there has always been diversity of thought and many different confessions of faith. And there has frequently been disagreement and often argument and sadly often division. And yet the church goes on. And Christians all over the world read the Bible in many different ways. I think sometimes the Bible itself may be one of those things Jesus prays that we'll be protected from because we're so good at using us, using the Bible to pull ourselves apart from others and to push others away from us. Now these words are ascribed to many authors, but it seems they come from the third or fourth century of the church. In essential matters unity. In doubtful, non-essential matters, liberty. In all things, love. So what is essential? Well, according to Jesus' prayer, it is essential that we come to know God, to be in communion with God like the Son knows the Father, like the Son is in communion with the Father now we get all tied up after that in Trinitarian theology the 20th century theologian Paul Tillich tried to to bring it down to the essentials and he called God the ground of all being apart from God we can't be and to be in this world fully alive is to be with God and to be one with God. But we are so good at denying that. We try to hide it. We try to run from it. We go out of our way to distract ourselves from it. We pick up on ideologies and fashions that stretch that relationship. Even the church offers us a lot of convenient distractions to move us away from our concern about that relationship with God that is essential. And Jesus is God's way, one way to look at it. Jesus is God's way of coming to find us, to pull us from our hiding places, to save us from ourselves, and to stop our foolish attempts to live entirely on our own. And Jesus invites us to follow him deeper and deeper into a life fully alive that is in connection with God, one with God. I made a mistake first of last week. I had already planned to uh, preach on the story of Jesus' Ascension, but I looked at one resource and picked up the, the, the readings for the seventh Sunday of Easter. And I think it's providential that we read from John 17 as our gospel on the first day of the 145th General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in Canada because we need to remember what Jesus prays for us, all of it. And these words haunt us. In essential matters, unity. In doubtful, non-essential matters, liberty. And in all things, love. Now it is more obvious when Presbyteries meet and when General Assemblies meet It is more obvious on our national church committees and in some congregations that sometimes it seems that we are on the eve of destruction. And I have fallen prey to that myself. But on the eve of General Assembly, I found some peace. Jesus' prayer is a great help to me, as so many in the church are predicting disunity or threatening to cause it. Our unity as people who follow Jesus in this world is oneness with God through him. Jesus doesn't pray that Canadian Presbyterians will always agree on everything. Jesus doesn't pray that any denomination, any expression of church will live entire and intact forever. And the issue that troubles our church and overshadows some so many good things that we are considering and that General Assembly will consider for the good of the church it's been overshadowed for years by the issue of the whether or not we are open to the full inclusion of LGBTQI plus people and specifically in ordination and same-sex marriage. And so for many in the church Settling that question has become essential. The church cannot be the church unless we are open to everyone. The church cannot be the church unless we resist the culture and stand firm, uphold tradition, take the Bible literally on this one issue. Those opposed to full inclusion, the loudest among them anyway, threaten to leave the denomination. And those in favor of inclusion point to the steady stream of members and ministers, almost all of them young members and ministers, who have already left. Some are LGBTQI persons themselves who have had to stay closeted within the Presbyterian Church in Canada. All call for full inclusion and hospitality. And some move on to inclusive churches. But many give up on the church altogether. So tragically, if we descend to the worst level as we decide as assembly, it will come down to a question of who can we afford to lose? It doesn't have to be that way. But if preserving the institution is our highest value, I always remember T.S. Eliot's words, The greatest treason against God is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. So how does a General Assembly work? At the 9 o'clock service I asked the question, why should we care about it? But I won't impose that on you today. But how does it work? Well, it'll be essential for us at this assembly to remember who we are and what we're part of. General Assembly and, and session does not convene or start a meeting. We constitute, we create something to deal with the business before it. And people like me will go as commissioners, not delegates, not representatives, but commissioned by our presbyteries and the elders, by sessions and presbyteries, trusted to lead and to seek God's will for the church. We gather claiming the promise of God's presence and power and guidance through the Holy Spirit. So we believe when we gather to lead and govern in the church, we come together, we become more than simply the sum of the parts. But over the last few years, it seems that General Assembly after General Assembly has descended to something less than It's supposed to be. And some people have behaved and influenced others through their behavior. That makes me wonder if, for some Presbyterians, winning is essential, getting your own way. But there's no unity within a group of Christians, a general assembly or a congregation, if there isn't liberty, if there isn't love. So on Tuesday morning there will be four options for commissioners to consider on Tuesday. Three I think are at least viable. One of them is crazy. It's to split us into three churches within one denomination, when we're having a hard time keeping one together. But the other options are to go right away to full inclusion in the church. The second one is no change. No change at all. And if that passes then the amnesty that was granted to people who over the past two years have been speaking and acting freely in our church will expire and they'll be subject to discipline. And then the last possibility is a halfway measure. No change in doctrine but allowing liberty for those who believe and practice Inclusion. It may turn out to be the most some could, can accept and the least others can accept for now. But more and more and more of our sessions and congregations are already doing that, already disobeying. Some have declared publicly that they're welcoming and affirming, and that includes several in our presbytery. In fact, I heard about another one yesterday. Both of the congregations, lively, flourishing, growing congregations that will host events for General Assembly, are publicly declared as welcoming and affirming. And others have been less public, but just as dedicated to living and working in a new way. Does that mean the church is not one? Or does that mean we are learning to live together with diversity? This will be my seventh General Assembly as commissioner or resource person. I hope it will be my last. And I'm going to try not to do what I've done in the past and that is compete for the award for the person most often at the microphone. I'm going to try to keep my mouth shut unless it's absolutely essential that I open it. But I'm encouraged by the number of ministers younger than me and of elders of all ages who should be allowed to speak so that loud mouths and fossils like me can step back because they are the hope of the church. Now I'll tell you, in my heart I favor full inclusion. I'll say that right out. I've seen how it can transform congregations and bring them alive as they discover that it is worth the decision to declare that you're inclusive and not just of LGBTQI people but all the other people, visible and invisible minorities that we, just by continuing to be who we've always been, we actually keep out, scare away, or push away by our behavior. I've seen how it can transform the life of a church. The true unity, the oneness with God that Jesus prays we'll find, isn't about us all being the same. It is about recognizing that we, the source and resource of life, we all draw from the same being. So, for me, and you may disagree, but for me, I have to ask, how can we dare declare that some are worthy of God's call to ministry and are gifted for it by the Holy Spirit, and declare that others are not just because they are who they are and God made them as they are? How can we say to one couple, your love is holy and God will bless your relationship, and say to another, your love is an illusion and God will not bless you. And dare we say to some your faith is real and say to others your faith is deficient and you can come but you have to become like us. I agree with something Michael Corrin wrote a while ago. We must extend the circle of love rather than stand at the corners of a square and repel outsiders. So that's where I stand. But I will be just one commissioner and the Holy Spirit may take us somewhere else. Amen. Glory to God.